Open your Bibles, if you would, to John, the 20th chapter. John, chapter 20. As you're turning there, I'll add my welcome to each and every one of you. You know, uh, I know the winds from a tropical storm can, can blow a lot of things. I didn't know it could blow souls into a church building. So very nice to see each and every one of you. Appreciate you all braving the weather. I was talking with Chuck in the back back there a minute ago, and as I was driving here this morning, I said, well, the weather's kind of bad, and you know, kind of in that lull season a little bit uh, for visitors. Maybe a pretty slim crowd today. His ways are higher than our ways. Appreciate you all uh, being here as we worship God on this Lord's Day, and it is our intention to uh, serve him in the way that we see in the New Testament. And we have engaged in those things this morning, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, giving back as we have prospered. And we um, are so very honored and privileged to be able to do that this morning. Leads to the question, which I wanted to start with this morning, and that is, why are we here? Why did we brave the weather to be here this morning? Um... There's several reasons why. You know, we can talk about the things that we do here on the first day of the week, and really those are things uh, that we participate in, and in and of themselves, not necessarily why we are here, but things that we do while we are here. We've been instructed to be here. That's a good reason, isn't it? God has told us we need to come together on the first day of the week. We see the apostolic example of, of Christians doing just that. And that's a good reason that we are here. Another good reason that we're here is because we want to be here. And that's really starting to get towards the heart of, uh, of, of a Christian service to his and her God, is that they want to be here. They want to be among the brethren. They want to be uh, engaged in the worship to our Lord. But if we were compelled to give just one reason, might I suggest this? We're here because we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the simplest way, I think, to express our faith. It means that we believe in the promise of God to redeem man from his sin. It means that we believe God set forth a plan for that redemption. And it means that his plan set forth is fully expressed in his son, Jesus Christ. So where does that faith come from then? We believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, if we're a Christian and we are here. But where does that faith come from? And we all know the answer to that question, don't we? In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, it says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Our faith comes by hearing about God's plan of redemption. By hearing about what our Lord did while he was on this earth. By hearing about the church being established after he has ascended into heaven. And we see the events taking place there in chapter 2 of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And we hear about God's grace and his mercy and his power. And all those things build our faith, don't they? The Apostle John, here in chapter 20, puts it this way. If you're there, look down at verse 30. 
It says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. We have been uh, talking about this passage here in our Bible classes and other places over the last several weeks. We've been doing a survey of the Bible, looking at each and every book in the Bible, and coming up with uh, themes for each book as we're going through. And the theme that we looked at and focused on when we came to John's, uh, John's Gospel was right here. These things are written that you may believe. And isn't that a wonderful thing to consider? This morning I'd like for us to look at this passage in a little bit more detail. And see how the elements of this, this passage are interconnected. And how that the, the, this passage and the, the interconnectivity and the elements that we will talk about, how that should produce faith in the hearer of the gospel. Let's start by considering what John says here first in, in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples. Signs. What, what's... John talking about. He's talking about miracles. He's talking about the miraculous things that our Lord did during his ministry. Interestingly enough, John only records seven of those miracles in his gospel. There were dozens. The other gospel writers record many more, but John only records seven. Yet John talks a lot about those miracles and what they meant. And the culmination of that right here in verse 30 and 31. But why signs? Why did Jesus perform these signs in the, in, in the uh, many witnesses, in the eyes of many witnesses? Well, they were uh, performed to, conf to confirm his power and his deity and his authority. In John chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Signs that he was doing helped to establish who he was and confirmed that he had the authority from on high. And they accompanied the teaching that he was doing during his ministry. It's interesting that um, as we think about and, and, and read the accounts, how the Jews thought about this. Remember how the Jews always wanted to see a sign from Jesus, didn't they? They questioned him so often. Lord, show us a sign. Give, give us a sign. Not that they always address him as Lord. In John chapter 2 and verse 18, says, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us that your, that your authority for doing these things? Testing him. Testing him. Matthew 12 and verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something. We want to see a sign from you. But as was often the case, when Jesus was approached in this way, do you remember how his attitude was often? He was reluctant to show him a sign, wasn't he? We read there from John 2, verse 18, and verse 19 and 20, after they said, uh, what authority do you have these, uh, this power? Show us a sign. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? I love that response. We read there from Matthew 12 and verse 38, where they say, teacher, show us a sign. This is that famous one where Jesus replies to them in verse 39. He said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given except that of Jonah the prophet. So in his reluctance to show them a sign, he's trying to tell them that there's, there's much more that you're just not getting, that you're not understanding. And in a way, Thomas did the same thing. We read there from uh, John chapter 20 earlier in this account, this, this whole thing flows from, from Jesus' interaction with Thomas, what we've called down through the years Doubting Thomas, Remember? There in, uh, if you're still there in John chapter 20, look in verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. Remember what Thomas said. Unless I shall see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. What's Thomas wanting here? He's wanting proof, isn't he? He's wanting a sign in a, in a way. They said, we've seen the Lord. They know that the Lord has been crucified. So it would be miraculous if they indeed had seen the Lord. And Thomas says, unless I have some proof, I'm not going to believe it. To put it cynically, the people wanted a magic show. They wanted to be impressed. They wanted to see what this man, this Jesus of Galilee, the son of a carpenter, could do. But Jesus knew that even this wouldn't be enough for some people. Even in seeing the signs, they weren't going to believe. But he said that those who have not seen him or the things that he did, but still believed, remember what he says about them? He says those are the ones that will be blessed. Brethren, ladies and gentlemen, that's us. Have we seen the crucified Christ? Did we see him being crucified? Did we see him after he was resurrected from the dead? No, we haven't. And neither has anyone else who will live from now on. We benefit from what has been written about those accounts, which leads to our next point. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Let's not overlook the importance of the written word. While the signs were important, as John states, the recording of those signs, the word that would be written, is what allows us to know about those things. John begins his gospel by, by stating how important the Word was. Remember, John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was God. John's recognizing how important the Word is, the written Word, and the Word as it means Jesus Christ. 
because he'll say later in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the word of God. And it's God's word that will last forever. In Isaiah 40 in verse 8, it says, the, grit, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. You know, Jesus' ministry lasted only about three years. That's a really short amount of time, isn't it? He lived to be about 33 years old, but his ministry was only about 30 years, or three years. That was about 2,000 years ago. How do we know about those things that took place back there in the first century? We know because of the written word of God. And this is not to minimize the importance of our Lord's ministry, not in any way. But we would not know the gospel if it wasn't written down for us. That's how important the written word is. That's how important the word of God is. John says, these things have been written so that you may believe. Jesus tells how important this is. That people can know of him. We read there from the account there in verse 29, the end of that says, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Remember what Thomas, when, when, he, when he touched the Lord's body, remember what he said? My Lord and my God. It took that to prove to Thomas that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. But Jesus reminds him, Blessed are they, are they who do not see and yet believe. Jesus is telling Thomas how important this is. In Romans chapter 10, look over there with me for just a moment. Romans chapter 10. We read there, or we referenced verse 17. I want to read a little bit more in that passage here about the importance of hearing, of knowing about the accounts that took place of our Lord. In John chapter 10, beginning at verse 14, it says, how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet for those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. What does this tell us? It tells us how important it is to hear the gospel. It's gone out to all the ends of the world. Guess what? The world keeps going. People keep getting born. We have a nine-day-old nine in our midst today. How is she going to know about the Word of God unless somebody tells her? We keep telling the, the, the story about our Lord over and over and over again. Why? So that we may believe. So that we can believe what we hear. 
in Romans 10 there in verse 14. How can they believe in him whom they have not heard? How can we know the gospel? How can we know about Jesus Christ in that three-year ministry and the miracles that he performed if we've never heard about it? It sounds simple, but it's powerful, isn't it? We can't expect people to be one to Christ if they have not heard about him. If we want to convert souls to Jesus Christ, they have to hear about Jesus Christ. John states here in, in, in the passage here that these things were written that you may believe. We arrive at our faith by hearing the word of God. We were not there in the first century uh, to witness uh, the Lord walking the earth. But the Holy Spirit has inspired men to write about those accounts, to write about his ministry, to write about the miracles that he performed. And 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever been made of act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit moved these men to write these things down. And now we have them. We can hold them in our hand. We can go to any bookstore and buy a copy of the Bible and read about our Lord Jesus Christ. So how important it is to have faith? It's so important <laughs> that without it, without faith, we're lost. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, we can't be pleasing to God. When we come to him, we must believe that he is. And he is that rewarder of those who seek him. And what is our reward? Our reward is to have life in his name. It says there at the end of our passage, and that believing you may have life in his name. What does that mean? What does life in the name of Jesus Christ mean? In John 10, verses, uh, verse 10, the end of verse 10, he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now we're talking about abundant life. How do we have life abundantly? How do we have life in the name of, of Jesus Christ and have it abundantly? In considering this, we must shed some, uh, of, the, shed some of the worldly ideals about what it means to live and to have an abundant life. You know, the world would have us to believe that we uh, heap up for ourselves wealth, earthly possessions, things of this world. That's how you live life abundantly according to the world. For the Christian, we know that this, li this life is temporary. We're just passing through this life. Yes, we live in this world, and we're subject to the good things that happen in this world. It's okay for us to accumulate wealth. If we're using it in the right way. It's okay for us to have a good life, surrounded by family, surrounded by brethren. But there's bad things in this life, too. Things that beset us, brothers that betray us, deaths in our family, 
But we are just pilgrims traveling through. And we're on our way to somewhere much more glorious. The Apostle Paul looks at it this way. Look, look over with me in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul often talks about his, the, the struggles that are going on within his own soul. Here in Philippians 1, beginning verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on the, in the flesh, this will mean truthful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Paul's saying, you know, if I'm on this earth, I'm going to be laboring for the gospel and doing good things for the Lord. That's good. But if I die, I get to be with Christ. That's good. Which do I choose? Verse 23, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to, part, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all of your progress and join the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ through my coming to you again. What does Paul say? He'd much rather die and go be with the Lord. But if he's going to be on this earth, it's for the sake of these Philippians and for the sake of others, so that he can teach, continue to teach and preach the gospel of our Lord. Having life in his name also means that we give over control to him. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul realizes he's got to give over control if he wants to have life in his name, if he wants to have life abundantly. And Jesus Christ has to be in control of his life. And that comes down to us too. If we want to have life in his name, we have to understand that we give him control in our lives. And we live a life to him, not to us. And it means that we can know that eternal life in heaven awaits the faithful child of God. One of the other passages we've been mentioning is 1 John chapter 5. This is John, one of John's letters. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We talked about how in his gospel he says, I write to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now he's writing in this letter to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And what is he writing them to tell them? That they can know that they have eternal life. What a blessing that is. To have that confidence. To know that we're, if we're living a, a faithful life to Jesus Christ, that eternal life in heaven is waiting for us when this world is over. In John chapter 21, as John is concluding his, his gospel, he writes in verse 25, And there are also many things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, 
I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Like I mentioned, John only records seven miracles. There's other things that he records, off, obviously, about his, our Lord's life. But he says there at the end that if we wrote down everything that he did, the books would fill up the world. But it goes back to what he says in chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe. Jesus did a lot during his time on, his, on earth. And the apostle John wrote some of those things down. And he did so that we might believe. And that we can, and, and in believing, we could have life in his name. So it comes down to the question, which brings us back to where we started. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's important in the faith of a Christian. It's down that line when someone is, is recognizing that to be a child of God, they need to be born of God. It's about hearing and believing, repenting. And then you confess that indeed Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You recognize who Jesus Christ is. And in that recognition, you realize that you have to be baptized in order to become a child of God. If you have not done that, if you need the prayers of the congregation, if you need further study, if you're down this road and, and need further study, we'd love to help you. Whatever we might do. As a child of God, if you've stumbled, and you're not living the life that you should lead as a child of God, we can help you with that as well. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand to sing to encourage you.